In March 1995, three people's lives intersected in a most unlikely place, America's living rooms. Jenny Jones, Scott Amadure, and John Schmitz, a famous talk show host, a bartender, and a restaurant worker. Their names would be linked forever. Jenny Jones was born in Bethlehem. Yes, that Bethlehem, not the one in Pennsylvania. Her father was in the British Army. They eventually settled in Canada. And young Janina Stronsky had stars in her eyes. She began her career as a drummer in a rock band. She changed her name to Jenny Jones and did stand-up comedy for a while and had a few roles in television series and game shows. In 1993, her big break came. She was offered the chance to host a syndicated talk show. She had visions of being another Oprah. In the beginning, she covered serious topics, but the ratings were low. This was the era of Maury Povich and Jerry Springer. Facing cancellation, she changed the format of her show. She abandoned the serious for the sensational. She went in for ambush television. The guest would be brought on with an embarrassing secret. Maybe it was a wife who took a paternity test and found herself pregnant while her husband was out of the country. Or maybe it was a husband who had an affair with the family nanny and fell in love with her and confessed to his wife on the show. The audience loved it. The raw emotion. The embarrassment. The pain. Her ratings took off. One of her tried and true sticks on the show was called My Secret Crush. Someone would come on and confess that they had a crush on another person. Maybe it was a young man who had a crush on his best friend's mother. Or perhaps a teacher who had a thing for the cheerleader who had graduated the year before. The unsuspecting person showed up, perhaps thinking they would meet the love of their life. Instead, fireworks often ensued. Which brings us to the episode taped on March 6, 1995. So mix that quintessential 90s cocktail, the Cosmopolitan, and sit back for the tale of the talk show ambush murder. Scott Amadur was 32 years old in 1995. He was born in Pittsburgh. He dropped out of school when he was 17 and joined the Army. While in the service, he came out to his family. They were accepting. His brother said the family didn't really think it was that big of a deal. He eventually settled in the Detroit area and worked as a bartender. His friends described him as outgoing and friendly. John Schmitz was 24 in 1995, and he had his share of problems. His father was an abusive homophobe. John himself had a problem with marijuana and alcohol, but he had recently seemed to turn his life around. He moved out of his parents' house and into his own apartment and he had a full-time job at a local fox and hound restaurant. In early 1995, John was working on a friend's car. Her name was Donna Riley. One of Donna's other friends was Scott Amadure. Scott noticed John that day and told Donna that he thought he was hot. He asked her if John was gay. Donna said she didn't know. She knew John had dated girls, but none of the relationships seemed to last. 
Some of John's friends and family speculated with one another, and, and some had even asked John directly if he was gay. He told them he wasn't. Scott's bartender gig allowed him to watch a lot of daytime television. He was a big fan of the afternoon talk shows. He saw an ad on the Jenny Jones show asking people with secret crushes to call. So he did. He called and told them about his feelings for John Schmitz. The show contacted John and told him someone had a secret crush on him and wanted to reveal themselves on the show. Initially, John refused. He didn't want any part of it. But his friends, including Donna Riley, encouraged him to go for it. They knew he had broken up with his fiancée and told him it might be a way to meet the love of his life. So John spent $300 on new clothes and flew to Chicago for the taping. Jenny Jones later testified that the show's producers were open with John. They warned him that his crush could be a woman, or it could be a man. John elected to go through with the taping. While he waited backstage, Donna and Scott went before the camera. Scott told Jenny how he and John had met. Jenny asked Scott if he had any particular fantasies about John. He mentioned that he had a hammock in his yard and fantasized about tying John to it. He also mentioned something about champagne and whipped cream. When John came on stage, he recognized Donna and kissed her. Perhaps he thought she was his crush. Then Scott grabbed him and hugged him. John stiffened up. He, he looked a bit stunned. Then Jenny told John, Scott is your crush. While the audience erupted in applause and not a little laughter, John good-naturedly smiled and laughed himself. A bit self-consciously, it must be said. Then he turned to Donna and through his laughter said, You lied to me. Jenny then played the tape of Scott's hammock fantasy. Again, John smiled, but less broadly this time. He finally said, but I am uh, definitely heterosexual, I guess you could say. After the taping, the three hung out together for drinks and dinner and took the same flight back to Detroit. On the plane, Scott told his seatmate what had happened and said it was embarrassing. He said, I'm not mad about it. But if I think about it very long, I could get mad. Three days later, John found a construction sign by his front door. It was the same sign that Scott had taken from an airport in Chicago. Under the sign was a note that read, You have the right tools to turn this on. John went to the bank and withdrew $200 in cash. Next, he went to a sporting goods store and bought a shotgun, telling the clerk that he was going duck hunting with his dad. The clerk showed him how to break down the gun and how to load it. He later mentioned that John didn't seem upset at all. Then John went to another store and bought some ammo. He asked the clerk the time, and when the clerk answered him, John said, good, I have time before I have to go to work. He went to Scott's house and asked him if he had left the note and the sign. Scott said no. According to testimony, both men got angry. Finally, John said he had to turn his car off and returned with the gun laying over his shoulder. They exchanged more words. John took the gun off his shoulder and pointed at Scott, who yelled to his roommate, He's got a gun! Scott picked up a wicker chair and held it over his head, and John pumped two shots into Scott's chest, killing him. He ran to his car and drove to a nearby gas station, put a quarter in a payphone, and called the police. I just shot somebody, he said. I just killed a guy. Why did you do it? The operator asked. Because he embarrassed me on television. The police arrived and took John into custody. 
He was charged with first-degree murder, which carried a life-without-parole sentence in Michigan. One of the prosecutors, named Richard Thompson, made several statements blaming the episode on The Jenny Jones Show. At one point, he said that he had spoken to psychologists who told him that murder was not an extraordinary response in a situation like this. He said they told him it was in the range of what could be expected when one man approached another man. This put the prosecutors at odds with the police, who believed John Schmitz should not only have been charged with first-degree murder, but also with a hate crime. Almost immediately, the episode gained national coverage, and as the trial approached and eventually wore on, more than a few people saw John Schmitz as as much of a victim as Scott Amador. At trial, John's confession was excluded because the police had failed to warn him of his right to remain silent before he confessed. The defense never denied that John had shot Scott, but they presented evidence of mitigating circumstances. They presented medical records which showed that he had suffered from Graves' disease, a thyroid condition that can cause irrational and sometimes even violent behavior. A psychologist testified that Scott suffered from manic depression that may have even been exacerbated by his recent breakup with his fiancée. The defense also presented what was known as the gay panic defense. They said that being accused of being a homosexual and being approached by a person of the same sex might have so infuriated John that he might have found it so offensive that it resulted in him going into a state of temporary insanity and murdering Scott Amador. Prosecution didn't buy this and countered that, in fact, John had exhibited all the necessary elements of premeditation. He waited three days before he confronted Scott after traveling home with him. He withdrew the money from the bank. He bought the gun. He bought the ammunition. He confronted Scott. Then he walked back to his car to get the gun. And then he shot him. In the end, the jury did not believe that John had committed premeditated murder. They convicted him instead of second-degree murder. They found that the killing was deliberate, but it was done without premeditation. Despite the mitigating circumstances that John's attorneys and even his father presented to the court, the judge gave him the maximum sentence of 25 to 50 years in the penitentiary. John appealed his conviction, and because of some errors in jury selection, it was overturned and a new trial was ordered. But the second trial ended the same way, and his 25 to 50 year sentence was reinstated. In 1999, Scott's family sued the Jenny Jones Show for negligence. They said that they should have taken into account John's mental state before booking him on the show and embarrassing him. Jenny herself testified that she saw no responsibility for the murder. She said that she knew that John knew his crush could have been a man. She said he could have walked away at any time before he walked down on the stage, but he didn't. The jury awarded Scott's family $29 million in damages for wrongful death. But the Michigan Court of Appeals overturned the verdict. In 2003, Jenny Jones' show was canceled. She left the entertainment industry and is now a high-profile influencer on social media. She also started a nonprofit. In 2017, John was released from prison after serving 22 years of his sentence. He currently lives in Michigan. Scott Amadour's family still doesn't believe that justice was carried out. Thank you, Dad. This is such a wild story and one that I learned about on Netflix's Trial by Media, but I had never heard of it before. 
Do you remember when this happened? Oh, big time. It uh, it made headlines from the moment he was arrested and the fact that and the fact came out that he had been a guest on the Jenny Jones show. Uh, this was in the very beginning of um, high profile cases on cable TV. Everybody followed this case. It, it started a huge debate over uh, hate crime, over uh, over the right. Reality TV, probably. Yeah, over these tabloid TV shows. Uh, I think to this day, you know, a lot of people don't really know who to blame in in, in this case. Whose fault was it? Yeah, well, we're going to get into that because there's a lot to unpack with this one. And it's also interesting, you know, that whole era of time in the 90s. But first, we're going to go over the trends of the crime. And, you know, we've done a lot of 90s lately, so I don't have a whole lot of value to add to trends of the crime this week. But uh, I just thought I'd talk about what Jenny Jones wore on her show. Uh, She wore really bright colored pantsuits with shoulder pads, power suits. Her more casual outfits were like cardigans with little floral shirts. If you're on TikTok and you know the soft girl aesthetic that's happening, that's Jenny Jones on a casual day in the 90s with pigtail braids. Very cute. But her guests and guests on a lot of these tabloid TV shows think like big curly hair, loud patterns like florals, checkered prints, stripes, uh, jumpers with turtlenecks, tights. Very Rachel from Friends-esque. So with the women, I mean, the men. Dad, what were guys wearing? That was pretty boring compared to the girls, but I'll let you speak to that. I really don't remember to tell you the truth. Uh, just uh, exactly. You know, that's when I was practicing law. So my my daily uniform was uh, usually a a suit and tie or khakis and a blazer. So um, yep. Now I, I I do notice when you were describing what Jenny wore until you got down to the pigtail, I was having this this vision of Hillary Clinton. Hmm. Exactly. 90s style icons right there. Mm-hmm. Hillary Clinton. I can see her now with her shoulder pad, like blue pantsuit, and she would have a little headband on. And mm-hmm. yeah, I can see it in my head. So very popular at the time, those pantsuits. And uh, I know that, you know, in 2016, when Hillary kind of really came back into the public eye, where us, us girls were trying to bring the colored pantsuits back and I'm not sure where that's landed because I don't have to wear suits to work, but someone let me know in the Facebook group, please. Well, I haven't seen a lot of them. And for that, I'll say thank you. <laughs> well, we'll see what happens <laughs> in the, with Kamala in office. We'll see how that influences uh, our fashion. I'm excited. Well, everyone will probably be wearing uh, Converse Tim. Chucks. Yeah. Yep. Chuck Taylors and Pearls. Yep. She's going to be the next big style icon I can feel. Well, her stepdaughter is becoming a style icon, like a legitimate one. So look her up. Keep an eye on her, you guys, you style lovers. She's she's going to be pretty cool soon. Well, tell us about the Cosmo. I, I immediately think of Sex in the City. Um, you know, the theme song is playing in my head. Tell us more. Well, it's the quintessential 90s cocktail. Uh, really got popular around the time Sex in the City came on. We, again, like most cocktails, we're not really sure who invented it, but um, uh, one of the people who was credited with inventing it said they wanted, uh, they wanted a martini-like drink for women. They were tired of the fruity, foo-foo-type drinks they wanted something with a little bit of a kick, but also with some flavor. So a, a Cosmo really is a, it's a vodka cocktail, a vodka cranberry, a Cape Cod, like we did a few weeks ago with, with some Cointreau added, maybe uh, some lemon or lime juice. So tasty, mm-hmm. a little bit tart, but um, that's, that's where it comes from. I love a good Cosmo. So this is a fun week for me. And I do like my trash TV, to be totally honest with you. As I've said many times, I love Dr. Phil, or I love his show, I should say. Speaking of these uh, talk shows, I thought I'd go over like the big three 90s tabloid TV shows that I think of, which are The Jenny Jones Show, Jerry Springer, and Maury. Dad, 
Uh, did I miss any big ones? I know there was Ricky Lake. Anyone else? Did those were those those were the the big three that I remember. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jenny Jones, Jerry Springer, and and Maury. Yep. All right, I've, I've got a little overview of all of them. So here we go. Starting with the Jenny Jones show, the star of this episode, or one of the stars of this episode. The show ran for 12 seasons from September 16th, 1991 to May 21st, 2003, and it was taped in Chicago. As Dad mentioned, it began as it began with a similar format to Oprah with cooking, homemaking interviews, but the ratings were low. So by 1993, they began to take on unusual subjects and theme shows like paternity tests, out of control teens, confronting bullies and revealing secret crushes, and more. Critics equated the show to Jerry Springer, but Jenny claimed hers was less outrageous than Springer's. Would you agree? I think so. I mean, Springer was known for having those big guys in in T-shirts on stage, and there was usually a fight that would break out, and the the guys in T-shirts would have to go in and break it up. I don't don't recall that happening very often, if at all, on on Jenny's show, but... uh, Maybe just because it wasn't encouraged. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree too. From I don't know, you know, I didn't, I wasn't alive when these shows started, but so I didn't know a whole lot of them. But from what I remember, uh, Jerry Springer was was the craziest. But we'll get to that. Jenny Jones was accused of stealing show topics from Ricky Lake when Lake outdid her in ratings in 1993, and it was rumored that Jones and Rosie O'Donnell had hostility toward one another. I don't know. I don't have any more details. I hadn't heard that before, but Mm -hmm. it was from Wikipedia. So do with that information what you will. Okay. On to Jerry Springer, Jerry, Jerry, Jerry. That's what I think of. And the fights. Jerry Springer aired for 28 seasons from September 30th, 1991 to July 26th, 2018. So it ended very recently. It was taped in Chicago from 91 to 2009 and then in Stamford, Connecticut from 2010 to 2018. The show started with a focus on politics, but that was unsuccessful. Similar story to Jenny Jones. So in the mid 90s, the show completely changed into what it is or what we know it as, which was controversial topics like incest and adultery profanity, physical fights, and scantily clad guests. It's been criticized that parts of the show are staged and political leaders and celebrities have condemned the show as trash TV, which has turned into its own genre of TV now. Yeah, Springer started out actually in politics. He was the mayor of Cincinnati. Hmm. A few years ago, he tried to run for the Senate from Ohio and was and was beaten. But... Um, yeah, he started out as a politician, and I think he saw himself as, uh, you know, kind of uh, presenting political commentary on his show. But the ratings were bad, and he needed to find something else, and he certainly did. Mm-hmm. Kept him on the air for a long time. Maury is the only one out of these three who is still on the air. It began again in 1991. The show has 53 seasons and has been renewed for the 2021-22 season. I cannot believe it's still on. I thought for sure Maury wasn't on anymore. Did you know it was still on? No, I had no idea. And I don't, I don't know where it is, but you know, I, don't, I don't watch a lot of daytime <laughs> TV, but uh, that's, that's interesting. Well, you can still find Maury somewhere, I guess. Maury was filmed in New York City for its first 18 seasons and has been taped in Stamford, Connecticut ever since. Common show themes are teenage pregnancy, infidelity, paternity test results, uncommon illnesses, makeovers, domestic violence, bullying, unusual, unusual phobias, and more. And critics have said that Maury is the worst show out of all tabloid talk shows, even worse than Jerry Springer. Why is that? Do you did you find anything out? I was trying I was trying to find why. Yeah, I I don't know. Because I don't recall physical too many physical fights on Maury. No. Maybe they mean as a person. Yeah, I and don't like know. Maybe I'm thinking maybe they meant like his show is the most manipulative of guests. 
Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, as I look at those three, I would have thought Maury was the closest to uh, being civilized. Me <laughs> too. So maybe it's just because of who he is and who he's married to. Who is he married to? Connie Chung. Oh, really? Yeah. So, you know, she was a, a, a network news anchor. Yeah. For years. Maybe his producers are the most uh, slimy. Yeah. That's all I can think of. I couldn't find any more info on it. But if I had to guess, that'd be why. Because they said the show is worse, not not him. Right. So, yeah. I wanted to talk a little more about tabloid talk shows or AKA trash TV. And this kind of leads into not only, not just tabloid talk shows, but it reminded me a lot of what's happening with The Bachelor right now, which I'll, I'll speak to in a moment. But producers mislead their guests and use the guests' embarrassment for ratings. Guests are met with fake sympathy from the hosts. Not completely fake, but not totally genuine either. And this kind of reminds me of what's happening in The Bachelor because... We have our first Black Bachelor right now, Matt James, and there have been parts of the show that have come out where like, there are really great conversations about race happening due to the George Floyd murder this summer and all of the protests, and we're seeing parts of those conversations, but we're not seeing like Matt's response. You know, One girl explained, a Black woman explained why she shaved her head, and it's because people were touching her hair, and she, you know, she didn't like that, and we And in the show, all we saw was Matt saying, oh, I'm so sorry you had to go through that. But I guess what he was really saying is that he shaved his head for the same reason. Mm. And that's why he won't grow his hair. So we miss out on these great conversations just to see cat fights on The Bachelor. Mm-hmm. Like they're cutting out really valuable lessons uh, for people who, you know, don't have those life experiences just to see girls be mean or women be mean to each other and tear other women down. So it, it really hasn't changed that much. (laughs) Don't you think that's intentional? It's very intentional. Um, and I've been having this conversation a lot with my friends because I've been watching the bachelor since I was seven years old in 2002 when it started with my mom. And I have a theory that back then the prime audience, I mean, times were very different. And I believe that the prime audience back then was like suburban mothers, you know, thirties, forties, but now women, my age and a little younger, like women in college are watching the bachelor and we're not afraid to call it out on its BS. And it's, you know, a lot of racism is coming out from bachelor and the bachelor host, Chris Harrison right now. And we're not afraid to call it out. And with social media, you know, it's just very different. So I think that Reality TV has got to change sometime soon or it's not going to be around because with this younger audience, uh, we're not afraid. Do, do you think they would lose audience uh, ratings if some of these conversations that you've just mentioned were, in fact, broadcast? Do you think people would feel I didn't? I watch this. I watch this to be entertained, not to be lectured. Do you think that would happen or do you think it would be uh, welcome? from a ratings point of view? I don't know. I, you know, I think women like me, uh, people around my age would welcome it because I'm in a Facebook group about a podcast I listen to shout out bachelor party. If you watch bachelor, you should listen. And a lot of the, a lot of the people on that Facebook group are saying they're going to stop watching if it doesn't change. But then I, then again, I think of all these people who love Chris Harrison and he's probably not coming back. I, I will be shocked if he comes back. Uh, and they may stop watching because he's gone and the show's going to be completely different. But the show's been on, how many years is that? 2002 to now. It's almost 20 years. And uh, something's got, I mean, I feel like it's getting a little stale, to be honest. So I don't know. I feel like they should try something, personally. HBO Max is putting out, like they put out a really good dating show. It was very different. And I loved it. It was called 12 Dates of Christmas. It was so different from The Bachelor, but it was still a dating show. It was great. It didn't have a host. It had like a funny black woman doing like a narration. And then it had a very diverse cast. It had a gay man, a white woman, and a black man as the three leads. And it was just really great. And you got to see all different kinds of relationships. And 
Yeah. I just think they should try something new. And I think reality producers are, I feel like all their tropes are, are overdone old and I'm bored. There you go. There you go. (laughs) I'm in charge. So they better listen to me. Just kidding. Yeah. Well, I've that's always, my thoughts on trash TV, reality TV in general, actually. Well, I've always looked at a lot of these shows as uh, professional wrestling uh, without the tights. How so? Just uh, just a lot of a lot of staged drama. Uh, a lot of uh, people tuning in just, you know, to watch the to watch the fights, to watch the to watch the bad girl or the bad guy. That's professional wrestling, and that's been around since the fifties. It's a it's a morality play of good versus evil, and you know you want to get the audience going, and you want to uh, you want to get the audience on the on the hero's side. And um, mm-hmm. seems to me it's something that's been around as long as TV or longer, just in right. a little bit different format. Well, I think there still needs to be a story, like a a villain, of course. Mm-hmm. But I think sometimes these shows take it so far that it's cheesy and fake, like it's clearly fake and it's annoying. But I, I agree. There still needs to be a bit of a story. And because mm-hmm. we're humans, we like to root for someone yeah. and have a clear person to not like. <laughs> so um, something interesting that about the Jenny Jones show in particular and when they were on trial, Jenny Jones herself said under oath that her show did not want Jonathan Schmitz to know his secret crush was a male. So they misled him into thinking the crush was a female. And I believe that's what ultimately won the family, the case. Is that correct? Well, I mean, I I don't, I don't know. I didn't actually look at the trial. I just know they won the case, but then the, the, the verdict was overturned. Mm -hmm. So they never got a dime. Mm. Yeah. I didn't, Realize that till your your story at the beginning. Current tabloid talk shows on the air are Maury, of course, Doctor Phil, of course, and the Steve Wilkos show. I just can't believe this stuff is still on. Well, I, I've never heard of Steve Wilkos. I've heard of Doctor Phil, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, I've heard of Steve Wilkos. It's the same. I mean, it's like Maury, I believe, and then Doctor Phil is more. It's it's the same subjects, but you're talking to a therapist, air quotes. So there are some shady things with Dr. Phil and his therapy, mm-hmm. the, uh, therapy license, but whatever. You can look that up. <laughs> Court TV also played a huge role in this case and, and in the 90s. Oh, something I forgot to point out. All three of those shows started in 1991. Mm-hmm. So there must have been like a huge just saturation of this in the 90s. Yeah, that would be crazy. That would be interesting to look at sometime. What what caused that explosion in the Yeah. And guess what else started in 1991? What's that? Court TV. Mhm. So all this 1991. What a good year. Yeah. Just kidding. <laughs> So Court TV launched in 1991 with a focus on true crime documentaries, legal dramas, and coverage of prominent criminal cases, which it's, I think that's where I've heard of it the most is coverage of these cases. Mm -hmm. It was born out of two competing projects to launch cable channels with live courtroom proceedings, the American Trial Network and In Court. Not only did the network cover the Scott Amador case, but it also covered the Menendez brothers and O.J. Simpson. I also have a list of 11 of the most watched television trials. What do you think's on here? I'm going to guess Ted Bundy would be on there. That's number one. I would say Dahmer would be on there. Number three. Uh, I, of course, remember O.J. Simpson. Yep. Um, Casey Anthony, I think, would have been on there. Who else? Mm-hmm. We have William Kennedy Smith, 1991. Who was that? Uh, that's uh, that's President Kennedy's sisters, whose name was Jean Smith. That's her son, and uh, he was accused of a of a rape down in Florida. Hmm. 
Uh, we also have The Officers Who Assaulted Rodney King, 1992. The Menendez Brothers. Mm-hmm. F- Phil Spector. Who's that? 2007 and 2009. Phil Spector's a big time uh, rock and roll guy uh, whose uh, wife or girlfriend was was found dead in in uh, in his house. Uh oh. Why was he there twice? Don't know. Don't know. That that might I'll be something. That, that, that might be something we'd look at next season, you think? I think so. I do like rockers. Mm-hmm. Let's see. Lindsay Lohan, twenty ten. Dr. Conrad Murray, who was uh Michael Jackson that was in with the Michael Jackson death. Mm-hmm. And Jody Aria Arias. Mm-hmm. That's a good case yeah. too. Yeah. So we just look at this list for next season then, don't we? Well, yep. <laughs> There's our episode list right there. <laughs> <laughs> we definitely got to do OJ. So mm. that'll be a good one. Uh, I also, I wanted to talk about Jeffrey Figer. Did you know anything about him before? I did case? not. Did, I did not. Mm-hmm. Do you remember in um, our Leopold and Loeb episode, when I was trying to think of a really dramatic attorney who the guy reminded me of, the attorney in Leopold and Loeb? The famous. Yeah, Clarence Darrow. Yeah. Remember, I was trying to think of who he reminded me right. of. Right. Uh huh. It was Jeffrey Figer. Okay. Okay. And they talk, you know, they talk to him in this trial by media on Netflix. Tell us all about him. So he was a theater major in college and obviously got his uh, law degree. And he represented the amateur family in the trial against the Jenny Jones show. He had a two and a half hour long opening statement Mm. is what they said on the show. I can only imagine what he said. The long time to keep his attention. I know. And like what they said or what they showed on the, on the documentary, you know, he's, he's like, you have to tell the jury a story. They're, they're not gonna, they're not gonna listen to you unless you give them a story. And he's like, he starts it off with like, on a windy, cloudy day in 1995. Blah, blah, and it's just so funny. And he's got this long hair. And he's so dramatic. And uh, he's known for his dramatics in the courtroom mm-hmm. and his tough cross-examining. He said, uh, if I talk to a witness and it sounds like a statement, it's got a tiny little question mark at the end because he's criticized for not really asking questions, just mm-hmm. like. Right. Saying accusatory right. statements, and someone said that he could be, uh, what is it when the when the other attorney says to the judge, objections? Yes, he could be objected like after everything he said if they yeah. wanted to. Yeah. So <laughs> he's he's an interesting guy, and he's got like commercials with cars blowing up and stuff like that. Uh, he's been involved with a variety of high profile or controversial cases. And in 1994, he represented Jack Kevorkian in the first of several doctor-assisted suicide trials. What were those? Well, Kevorkian was a doctor who believed that a person had the right to end their end their own life, um, you know, if they were terminally ill. And he would administer um, he'd administer morphine or help them administer it, um, you know, or, or some drug to to kill themselves. Mm-hmm. And he was charged with murder on several, you know, on, on more than one occasion. Mm-hmm. So that's changed now, right? Well, in some, in some states, you know, Oregon, yeah. Oregon allows it. I don't know if there are others that do or not, but mm-hmm. I know Oregon does. Yeah. Interesting. Some of his cases that I had heard of that he was involved with were the amateur family, of course. Family of Isaiah Scholes, who was killed in the Columbine High School massacre. And the family of Kanika Jenkins, a 19-year-old girl who was found dead in a Rosemont, Illinois hotel freezer in 2017 after a night of partying. Have you heard of that one? I have not. I have not. We gotta do that one. Yeah. That one's crazy. So he's been involved in some big stuff. And uh, you know, everyone on that documentary, all the other attorneys really respect him, but you know, they're like, oh man, Figer, he's crazy, but <laughs> they respect him and Clear, I mean, he clearly can back up what he's laying down with the, with this list of cases. So, right. Anything to add on dramatic attorneys? Did you come across any in your 
time as an attorney, Dad? Oh, not around here. Um, you know, another another one who uh, who had quite a reputation was a guy named Jerry Spence out of uh, out of Wyoming. Um, mm-hmm. I think he's dead now, but uh, he represented um, some pretty high profile clients in uh, cases against the government or against large corporations. And he always, when he was on TV, he'd always have a cowboy hat and a buckskin coat. And mm. um, one of one of his favorite tactics, if he was suing or if he was suing the United States, for example, or a government agency, or he was defending someone who was accused of a crime, you know, most attorneys, when they refer to the other attorney, they'd say, you know, counsel for the counsel for the uh, prosecution or my learned opponent, you know, some respectful phrase. Uh, Spence would always call him. Now, the government attorney would have you believe. The government attorney would say, would tell you. So you know, just from the beginning, just spit out the word government. Uh, That's funny. I, I can't even bear to say say that word. And he was quite successful in a number of cases. Mm-hmm. So that was that was one of the one of the big attorneys of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, there's Perry Mason. Of course. Did you know they remade Perry Mason on HBO? I did. And I watched the first three episodes and I didn't like it. They didn't. didn't like he it. wasn't even an attorney. They had him as a low down private detective. Mm-hmm. So, I haven't watched it yet. Yeah. The girls that are the the women on My Favorite Murder love that show. I, I may I may anything. watch it. Uh, I may pick it up sometime if I'm, you know, homesick and nothing else to do. Mm-hmm. Any listeners, let us know if you like it and if we should watch it. I'm curious. Last on my list is the LGBTQ plus or gay panic defense. And I found this info from LGBTbar.org. This is a legal strategy that asks the jury to find that a victim's sexual orientation or gender identity slash expression is to blame for a defendant's violent reaction, including murder. So in this case, Schmitz's attorney tried to say that he killed Scott because Scott was gay. Um, A a little bit more nuanced than that. mm -hmm. Uh, As I understand the... Um, it's like he, he a panic defense that someone is is so offended and and just so incensed by a person of the same sex approaching them or hitting on them that it it causes them to go temporarily insane, which could result in murder. So it's not just well. He's a gay person. I don't like gay people. I mean, it, it, it has, there has to be more to it than that. That you know, this person did something that just so incensed me and offended me that I lost control. Hmm. I still don't like it. No, I don't either. I mean, and and the sad part is, it's only been banned in uh, in 12, 12. Well, 11 states in the District of Columbia. So mm-hmm. that means in uh, in thirty eight states. If a gay person is killed, the defense could could um, could use this as an attempt to either get off or or mitigate a sentence, which is is sad. I mean, could you imagine if if they were using this, you know, against a a, a person of color? Well, that I'm just so incensed by a black person that uh, drove me insane and I had to kill him. People may try to say that, but that defense wouldn't be allowed. Mm-hmm. In, in any state today, but you know this still is, which is a. Uh, I mean, I know, I know that you know we have come a long way, but um, when thirty-eight states still would allow this this defense to be used in a in a basically a hate crime trial is is sad. It's just sickening. I mean, if someone offends me, I'm not going to murder them, right? And and or hurt them in any way. I mean. It's ridiculous. And they have tried to use it. They have tried to ban it on the federal level uh, twice, but it's died in committee both times. So if a person's accused of a federal crime, uh, they could still use this defense. Ugh, gross. Well, one of the most recognized cases that employed this LGBTQ plus panic defense was Matthew Shepard. 
1998, Matthew Shepard, a 21-year-old college student, was beaten to death by two men. The men attempted to use the LGBTQ plus panic defense to excuse their actions. Despite widespread public protest, the defense is still being used today. Now, I don't know of any instance where it actually worked. But mm-hmm. just the, the fact that, that it could be used in, in a court in 2021 is a sad commentary on where we are. Mm-hmm. Very. And I will note there are 14 states where legislation legislation against this defense has been introduced, but not yet passed. But that still leaves, you know, 20, well, it'd be 27 because District of Columbia isn't a state, or it'd be 25. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So there are still 25 states and Kansas is one of them. I will point out to you all that right. legislation has not even been introduced yeah. to remove this. Yeah. Just it- sad. Come on, Kansas. You know, and it, it may it may take a um, it may take a Supreme Court case to finally do away with this thing. But with the makeup of the court today, that's not going to happen. I don't think. Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, something something to work towards to make, you know, make our country a better place mm-hmm. for future mm-hmm. generations. Yep. You can learn more at the LGBT and they talk a lot about uh like this defense and how, uh, why it's allowed another, like what dad was saying, you can't use Mm -hmm. that against a person of color, like why this is okay. And that's not stuff like that. Well, Macy, before we go, I'm just interested in your feelings or opinions. Who do you blame for, um, Scott Amadou's death? Who, who bears, responsibility for it this is a muddy case i mean they said it on on that netflix show that i keep bringing up that everyone was a victim here i mean obviously scott was the ultimate victim because he lost his life and his family lost a beloved son and brother Mm -hmm. and he his friends lost a friend but jonathan i mean he was manipulated and I it's it's very interesting to hear about hear from people who have been on reality TV shows and hear how manipulated they really are or how how what they've done on the show comes across so differently when the show airs. Mm-hmm. Um and you know Jonathan was a victim of I I in my opinion physical and mental abuse from his father uh his dad hit him and told him that that show airs or if he goes on that show or something, don't even bother coming home. Like you've embarrassed me by a man having a crush on you. Just horrible things, calling him names. So it's hard. I mean, Jonathan did not have an easy life and he still doesn't have an easy life. He's out of prison, but you know, he's, that's a pretty well-known case. So I obviously side more with the amateurs because I don't think anyone deserves to be, you know, murdered especially in this case um but yeah i don't know what do you think that i don't really have an answer for you sorry well i mean i think i i think um clearly john has to bear responsibility i mean he had every chance to walk away from this thing without killing him um but uh, to me it was a premeditated murder i mean he Waited three days. He bought the gun. He went to the guy's house. He went back to the car to get the gun. He shot him. So, I mean, I can't, I can't say he bears no responsibility. But if the Jenny Jones show had not existed, uh, Scott Amager would be alive today and, and John Smith's would be, well, I don't know what he'd be doing, but he certainly wouldn't have spent um, 22 years in prison. I just think that whole genre is just completely irresponsible. I'm I'm sorry they didn't have to pay money. I don't know what the ruling was, but what is it that drives people to to watch this? I mean, and I think everybody's got everybody who who watches these shows and 
and talks about them at the water cooler the next day, you know, we bear a little bit of vicarious responsibility. If people weren't watching these shows, they wouldn't be on. I know what it is. What? I know what part of it is. What? What we talked about last week. It's that schadenfreude. Mm-hmm. The delight and the suffering of others. Yeah. yeah. We like to see that other people's lives are worse than ours. Even if they're not, really. I mean, it's a horrible thing. But it's, I, I think it's human nature. And we like to see drama. And But you're right. Like, if people didn't watch it, then there wouldn't be those shows. If you received a phone call from... Dr. Phil or, or Maury and uh, asked you to be on the show that, you know, someone had something they needed to tell you. I don't know what it would be. Would, would you consider going on? No, yeah. never. I would not. I, I, I think that it, uh, I think that I have enough knowledge on what these shows do. Yeah. I would say, hell no, never call me again. <laughs> I would too. I would too. Mm-hmm. Oh, let us know what you guys think. I, yeah, I'll, I'll put a poll after the episode goes live about who we think, you know, is responsible and just interesting. Uh, it's it's definitely not a clear cut case for sure. But well, thank you all for listening this week. Yes, thank you very much. I've been bad, and I still don't know who we're doing next week. <laughs> Do you know, Dad? I can uh, find out. Uh, we still have really cute merch, you guys. Um, I'm going to be adding some tanks and stuff as the weather gets warmer, but it's still a little chilly. So be sure to get your long sleeve tees and hoodies. Uh, We've got our three designs that were made by Lucy, Lucy Besh. And uh, yeah, they're really cute. And we want you to, you know, show off your cute merch and tell your friends all about us. That's, that's the one way that will help us out a ton and keep us recording and making the show for you. Well, we are finally leaving the 80s and 90s. In fact, we, are, we are leaving not only the 21st century, but the 20th century. Next week, we will be looking at the case of Lizzie Borden. <gasps> How's the song go? You see, Lizzie Borden took an axe and gave her mother 40 wax. When she something, something, when she was done, she gave her father 41. Yes. Oh. I'm excited. So we'll be looking at that old axe murderer, maybe, Lizzie Borden next week. All right. Get excited. It's a good one. All right. We will see you guys next week. All right. Goodbye. Bye. This has been Cocktails of Crime and Fashion. If you're enjoying our show, please leave us a five-star rating and review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to the show. Join our VIP Facebook group, Cocktails of Crime and Fashion VIP, to discuss cocktails, crime, and fashion, and to watch exclusive video content. Follow us on Instagram at Cocktails of Crime and Fashion. We also have merch. There's a link in the episode notes. Cocktails of Crime and Fashion was written and produced by Mike Norland and Macy Norland Burkett. Our editor is Don Bailey at pretendmachine.com. Thank you to Alex Joaquim for composing our theme music and to Kaylee Bitter for designing our cover art.